Well, friends, the text we're going to be looking at this morning is Isaiah chapter 43, verses 8 through 13. So if you're following along in your Bible, that'd be the place to turn, Isaiah 43, verses 8 to 13. And I'll read our text and we'll pray for God's blessing to start things off. This is the word of the Lord. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true you are my witnesses declares the lord and my servant whom i have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that i am he before me no god was formed nor shall there be any after me i i am the lord And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Let's pray. Father, we approach your word and we plead with you for your spirit to work mightily in our midst, to open up our eyes and our ears to see and to hear the treasures that you have for us in your scriptures. Father, we pray that you would make us alert to spiritual things, make us alert to your glory, make us alert to ways that we have seen you wrongly, ways that you may need to correct us. Make us alert to ways that you're so much greater than we've seen and that we need to be in awe of you. God, please renew our minds and help us to see who we are in Christ and what you've called us to. And I pray for myself that you'd give me clarity and faithfulness in proclamation of these glorious truths. We pray that each one would be worked on and shepherded in exactly the way that you see is needed, that we would all be growing up in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. It's always helpful to be very clear about our purpose. Well-run organizations know this, so they'll often have an articulated purpose statement. You may have heard of mission creep when an organization or a certain operation Happens and there's not a clear sense of what the purpose is and what are the boundaries of the goal here. And there can be a, just a kind of an aimlessness of going, what do we do and what do we not do? And we know in our personal lives, life can be very complicated and busy and we're constantly being pulled in this direction, yanked in that direction, constantly finding ourselves reacting to things, putting out fires, meeting urgent needs, taking opportunities or turning down opportunities. But in the midst of all this, it can be difficult to get above the fog and see the purpose of all of these things. Why am I here? What should my goals be? 
Well, in today's text, the Lord is giving us some urgently needed clarity about our purpose as His people. And when I say this, our our purpose as God's people, I don't want this to sound too functional. Because it's not mostly that God wants us to get a job done. There is a task for us to do that's part of our purpose as God's people. But more fundamentally, underneath stuff to do, it's relational. God's purpose for us fundamentally is relational. And the task that he's given us flows from this relationship. So if the relationship is broken, or if we're unclear on the relationship, the task is cut off from any hope of success. So, here's what the text is showing us regarding our purpose as God's people. Here it is. God saves us to see, trust, and testify that He is the I Am. God saves us to see, trust, and testify that He is the I Am. And we're going to see this uh, purpose statement, we could say, broken up into three parts. And those three parts, if you're listening, the three things I listed in that sentence. Seeing, trusting, and testifying. So let's look at each of these in turn. First of all, God saves us so that we'll see that he is the I am. Now in the part of Isaiah that we're in, the prophet is making a sustained argument that even Israel's ongoing sinfulness and the exile that results from that sinfulness will not stop the Lord from saving them. And in saving them, he's going to show his supremacy over all the other gods. In the past few weeks, we've seen the Lord rebuking Israel, his covenant nation, because they refused to learn either, firstly, they refused to learn from his good laws that he gave them. And secondly, because they refused to learn from his laws, he gave them judgment and they refused to learn from the judgment they faced. And so the sad verdict at the end of that in 42.25 was they couldn't learn because their hearts were hardened. But then last week, moving into chapter 43, verses 1 to 7, we saw that even Israel's stubborn sinfulness and hardness of heart could do nothing to quench the flame of the Lord's saving covenant love for them. This is a love that chose them in the first place to be His adopted children. This is a love that discriminates between them and the other people of the world, as offensive as that may be to us. This is a love that assured them of His presence with them, that would be constant even in the floods and the fires that their own sin would bring upon them. So now that we've seen Israel's sin and the Lord's steadfast love for them, it's time to see how this salvation that He's promising will prove his supremacy over the pagan gods of the nations. Now our text takes the form of a dramatic scene. And it's set in a courtroom. In verses 8 and 9, we have uh, the prophet reporting how the Lord summons everyone to his tribunal in court. Both Israel in verse 8 and the nations at the beginning of verse 9. It says, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. That's Israel. We heard about them described that way back in chapter 42 verse 20. 
And he continues, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. And after this assembly is described, we hear the call for witnesses in the rest of verse 9. The Lord is, is calling out in the courtroom, Who among them, the nations, can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. This is a trial to adjudicate between the claims of Yahweh, the true God of Israel, and all of the rival gods of the nations. It is a showdown of the gods. You may remember in Israel's history when the the prophet Elijah is on Mount Carmel and he has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. It's a very similar situation in this kind of dramatic literary form here. The question is, can anyone offer testimony about the truthfulness of their gods? In verse 9, this word this, who among them can declare this, is most likely the future events that the Lord is predicting here, which is the coming conquest and exile by Babylon. He had told them that that would happen in chapter 39. And then the subsequent rescue from exile that he's promising even now before the exile. And starting in verse 14, he's going to start talking about redeeming them from exile. So before starting to make predictions about the future, he he asks the other gods, which of you can predict what's about to happen? And similarly, when he says the former things in verse 9, this seems to refer to the things that happened in the past. Specifically, works of deliverance that God had performed for Israel. And it may be that in keeping with the theme of predicting the future, When he says, who can declare the former things? It may be that he's talking about former things that he had predicted before they came to pass. A few weeks ago, when we were in chapter 42, verses 10 to 17, we saw a preview of a major argument that the Lord is making again here in this section. That he alone is the transcendent creator who shapes history. Other gods are just swimming in the stream of history. The Lord himself alone directs the course of history. Everyone else is characters in the story of history that he's writing. Again, the pagans didn't even claim that their gods were totally sovereign over everything. And here we see the same argument again. God saying, have any of the false gods done any works of deliverance in the past? Have they ever predicted a work of deliverance and then carried it out? Are they going to be able to predict now what I'm about to do in the future? Is there any witness here among all the nations who can provide a single occasion when this has happened? This is exactly what the Lord is doing. He's setting himself apart from the nations. That he alone can do these things. He says in verse 10, This is the point he's trying to drive home. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. The idea of a God being formed, this is a major burn to say, I'm the God who was not made. Because all of the pagan gods had origin stories about how they came into being, how they came into existence. Again, I talked uh, uh, back a few weeks ago about this concept of We could call it creation ex nihilo. God creating from nothing. This is the 
The, the, the point that God makes about himself, even back to Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the Bible, when it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. None of the foreign pagan gods made these claims about their gods. He didn't start with pre-existing materials. There's no story about how he came into existence. He just was. Everything that isn't God was created by God. Which means that everything that isn't God exists on an entirely different plane than God. He is different. He is other. There is a stark divide between the Creator and the creature. As Moses expresses with his song of praise in Exodus 15.11, he says, Who is like you, O Lord, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Lord, you alone do things and there's no one like you. You're the creator, the, the one who sovereignly directs all of history. That's the point that the Lord is making here about him versus all the other gods. But here's the sad part about the trial. It's how Israel is identified in verse 8. They are the people who are blind, even though they have eyes. And they're the people who are deaf, even though they have ears. Again, this is the accusation he made back in chapter 42, verse 20, when he was explaining why they wouldn't learn from his good laws. Why they wouldn't learn to trust and obey him alone. When the law itself should have been proof enough of how worthy he was to be followed. This blindness and deafness, it's important that he says, you have eyes, you have ears. This is not God's fault. He has given them the equipment that they need to know him. And knowing him, as verse 10 tells us, was their purpose. This is why he chose them. And this is why he was working among them. So that they would know and believe and understand him. But they've lost their faculties. They've become just like the nations that are beholden to false gods. And these false gods dull and dehumanize their worshipers. Uh, listen to how this is described in Psalm 115.4-8. And I, I think I read this a few weeks earlier, but it's just such an important way of describing kind of the biblical view of what false gods do to us. Because this is what the Lord is arguing as well about Israel. He says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. He's saying these gods look like us. And remember, man is made in the image of God. Idols are made in the image of man. But they don't have any of the faculties. They don't have any of the abilities that we do. And by worshiping them, we start to lose some of our humanness. We, we become shriveled up versions of ourselves when we give ourselves over to these impotent false gods. God is saying, why are you blind? You have eyes. Why are you deaf? You have ears. These idols are robbing you of your humanity. What was Israel supposed to see and hear? 
Well, in verse 10, the Lord expresses it as that I am He. And in verse 11, I, I am the Lord. And in verse 13, again, I am He. All of this I am language is supposed to call back to Exodus 3.14. At the burning bush, when the Lord revealed His covenant name to Moses on the brink of the Exodus deliverance, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. Yahweh, His covenant name, means the I am. And there are volumes of theology packed into those, what in English is just three letters. What it primarily conveys is God as the eternal and self-existent one. He just is. The first thing that Israel needs to know about God, which the Exodus was supposed to prove to them, which is why God reveals this name right before the Exodus, and he interprets the Exodus events as, then they will know that I am Yahweh. What they need to know is that he is. He exists by himself. He's not dependent on anyone else or anything else. And he doesn't originate from anything else. He exists eternally, which means he was not created and he'll never end. And in fact, he's above time. He's outside of time. It means he's never changing and can't possibly be changed. It means he's not made of parts, but he's one simple substance. And by saying simple, I don't mean he's easy to totally understand, not at all. But meaning he doesn't have parts. Because if he were made of parts, then he would depend on the parts. Then if he were made of parts, then it would be possible to take parts apart and change him. No, none of these things are true of God. That means he's perfect in fullness. He's lacking in nothing from his own blessed fountain of self-sufficiency. Now, these are a lot of important and glorious truths, but they sound a little abstract when we just say them that way. But here's where it all gets very practical. The way that Israel was supposed to see that God is the I am is specifically and concretely through salvation. Through salvation. Look at verse 11. I, I am the Lord. I am the Yahweh, the I am. And besides me, there is no... And I think we would expect to read God here. I think we would most naturally think he would say, besides me, there is no God, which is true. But he says, besides me, there is no Savior. Yahweh means I am. And practically speaking, Israel, for you, what this boils down to is, I'm the only Savior. It was through acts of salvation that Israel was supposed to see that God is the I am. Especially the Exodus, when he first revealed that glorious name to them and saved them by works of power, by an outstretched arm against Egypt. And it was on the far shores of the Red Sea after that dramatic Red Sea crossing when Moses penned those thundering words we just heard from Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? He has just proven definitively that the answer is no one. This is what Israel was supposed to see and hear in the Lord's saving acts on their behalf. So the Lord's great argument against the false gods is that He alone can predict and perform acts of deliverance in history. And He chooses His servants, this is why He chose Israel, to experience His salvation And conclude based on that experience that he is the I am. To see it for themselves. 
And that by seeing it, they and their existence would serve as exhibit A in his argument for himself against all the other gods. And as we'll see in a, in a little bit, this is what feeds into their function as his witnesses. Now, sometimes we talk this way. We say, Let, let's see what you're made of. Let's see what you're made of. Now, we're not talking about organs and tissue and things like that. When we say, let's see what you're made of, what we're usually doing is we're challenging somebody to do something. Maybe someone has been boasting about their athletic prowess or their chess wizardry or whatever it is that they, they can do. Some ability that lies hidden and latent in them and no one can see it and prove it until it gets put to work. So what you're made of, which is kind of like what's inside you, what you are, will become clear enough when you can accomplish something. And this is precisely the logic that God is using to prove his supremacy over the gods. God is saying, you know what I'm made of, that I'm the I am because I'm the only savior. You've seen that in your history. You should have seen that in your history. Now, as for us, the circumstances are a bit different. But the same point is still quite relevant. We are supposed to take note of God's works of salvation, whether in history, this could be, of course, what's chronicled for us in Scripture, and even subsequent to Scripture in the years of church history, and the works of salvation He's performed in our own lives. He means for us to have open spiritual eyes and open spiritual ears to learn from these works how great and unique He is. But sadly, just as Israel learned from their own experience, false gods can make us blind and deaf also. And just like we read about in Psalm 115, they dehumanize us, they dull us. They take away our faculties. They take away our ability to reason and to see reality. Now often we can see this more clearly in other people than in ourselves. And I'm once again going to bring up what happened this last week regarding the overturn of Roe v. Wade on Friday. And I'm not saying this to make a political point. This is a moral point. The sanctity of life and the uh, humanness of the unborn is a clear biblical fact. But when this, this ruling was overturned, and even earlier when it was leaked that it would overturn, it's been astounding to see the ways that devotion to false gods, gods of self, gods of pleasure, gods of sex, can so twist the rational abilities of otherwise very intelligent people. People who normally can think very clearly. And on issues like this, we can see what is happening to your mind. You're believing and arguing nonsense. And again, I say this, I'm not saying this to make any of us feel superior because we can see what they don't see. I'm saying we can sometimes see this more clearly when others are doing it than when we're doing it. I'm saying this to illustrate what devotion to false gods will do to any of us. Money, pleasure, possessions, work, reputation, comfort, accomplishments, education, family. Some of us may profess to believe in Christ and may truly be Christians, may truly believe in him. But in our hearts, if we're really honest and we survey our, our kind of affectional life, we find God boring. We may affirm all the theological facts I, I just said about God, that he's self-existent and eternal, etc. And yet he just doesn't capture our interest. We'd much rather be thinking about other things. 
And we know this because when we're trying to think about God, we just keep thinking about other things. When we're trying to worship in private or public, in our prayers or our Bible, forgiveness and cleansing and adoption. And yet our hearts are, are still being pulled in other directions. God's word for us as it was for Israel, friends, is to remember the past. Remember his saving works. And remember what those works show us about who he still is. Who could have saved Israel from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm but the Lord? Who else could have raised Jesus from the dead? Who else could have overcome the hardness of your heart when the gospel was preached to you and brought you to rest in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? God saves us to see that He is the I Am. The logic then progresses, secondly, that God saves us so we'll trust that He is the I Am. This is the second major heading. God saves us so we'll trust that He is the I Am. This is why God is making this argument to Israel. They have wandered from His ways. They've adopted the worship of false gods from their neighbors. We read earlier in this book in Isaiah 2.8, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Made gods, created gods. This idolatry, and it's clear that it's not only idolatry isolated, but it brings about this whole train of personal sin and societal injustice behind it. This is the reason why they're being sent away from God and His land in judgment. But now as they face down this prospect of exile, the great danger is that this disaster will not jar them loose. They may fear the future and they may turn again to the false gods to deal with that fear. It's like any destructive behavior that you do it and then because you did it, life starts falling apart. And then to deal with the stress of your life crumbling apart, you turn back again to that same behavior. And so you just pour gasoline on the flames. There was real danger that in in this time of fear about the future, they would turn again to their false gods. And with the false gods that tempt us, the danger is that we would fall into that same vicious cycle. So God is here breaking that cycle. He's saying, yes, your idolatry and sin have brought disaster upon you. So let's use this as an off-ramp to, to a, a return to me from your wayward course, to return back to the Lord, not doubling down on the very idolatrous worship that got you here. The message here is that with trouble looming, trust the Lord. He alone is the I am who shapes history. And as the past is borne out, he alone is the Savior. This is the point he makes in verse 12 when he says, First of all, he says, I declared. This means that in the past, he had predicted his saving acts. Again, the Exodus. Before he uh, brought Moses into Egypt and and delivered his people, he predicted all of this. You can read about it in Exodus. He told Moses what he was going to do. He told the people of Israel what he was going to do. And then he did it. And then he says, I saved. Meaning he actually executed these works of deliverance in the past. And then he says, I proclaimed. So after the fact, he revealed words to Israel to explain what he had done, to remind them of what he had done, and to show them what it reflects about him. He's saying, I've predicted it, I've done it, I've explained it to you. And this is so crucial in verse 12. 
when there was no strange God among you. Before the Exodus, they were not crying out to other gods. They were only crying out to the God of their fathers. It was not an alliance of gods that rescued them. It was Yahweh going toe-to-toe with the gods of Egypt. That's what all the plagues were meant to symbolize. It was God showing his supremacy over the gods of Egypt and showing that he alone is the self-existent I am. And you can go all the way through Israel's history and see the same thing over and over. He promised and delivered numerous descendants to Abraham when it seemed impossible that Abraham and his wife could produce any offspring. No strange God helped with that. He brought victory to Israel in Canaan under Joshua. He brought them into the land. He gave them victory over the inhabitants and drove them out. There were no strange gods helping then either. So now, with Israel looking ahead at the the fearful prospect of defeat and exile, he's asking them the same question. Will you need strange gods to help you now? Who will you trust in exile? Who will you lean on? And verse 13 tells us to, to reinforce this point about him being the only Savior. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Nothing he does can be undone by anyone else. So when he saves, he saves. He saves fully. He saves finally. He saves irrevocably. There is no one else to honor. There is no one else to fear. Now we can acknowledge with our lips that God is God. That Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is God. But functionally, we can hollow out the meaning of his name by diminishing his uniqueness as the only Savior. When we seek after other saviors, what we're saying by our actions is that he is not the only savior. And what we're saying is that he's less than God. He's less than the I am. And this is why our passage's emphasis on history comes in and is so crucial. Because when false gods tempt us, here's what we hardly ever do. We hardly ever consider what those false gods have done for us in the past. And I brought this up three weeks ago when we looked at 42 verses 10 to 17, but it's so important it's worth repeating again. What have the false gods done for you? They've demanded a lot from you. They've taken your time. They've taken your sleep, your affection, your health, your money, your relationships. They've taken the opportunity cost of, of worship diverted away from the Lord to them instead. What has the payoff been? Probably just increased anxiety at at the thought of losing whatever it is you're investing in. When we've gone to our false gods in times of fear and anxiety about the future, they haven't delivered us from those fears, have they? They've just said, just bring a little more. Just give me a little more. Just more. When we've devoted ourselves to them, they have not led to flourishing or joy or stability, have they? Friends, as God's people, let us all come away from this morning's text resolving never to entrust our future to gods who have never done anything for us in the past. They take and they never give. What about the Lord? What has He done for us? 
How has He delivered us from the dark things looming in our future that we thought would consume us? And I'm not saying that He has uh, prevented us from suffering or that He has made hard and bad circumstances not happen. But how has He walked through the dark valleys with us and made, with His abundant grace, made bearable what we could have never borne all along? And when we've looked ahead at things in the future that frightened us and we thought, this would be my undoing, and we've walked through them, and even when they've been really, really hard, it has not undone us because the Lord has been with us. Hasn't He done that for you? How has worshiping Him led to flourishing and joy? Consider your own life. Test your own life. When you've been most devoted to the Lord, haven't those been the best times in your life? Even if the circumstances have been painful and adverse and difficult. The point is still the same. As we hear in Psalm 36 verses 7 to 8. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. This is what it means to trust the Lord. Now trust accrues through testing and time. Has it ever struck you, I don't know when you're driving or a passenger with another driver, what a wild thing it is that we sit in a car and rock it down the highway at 70 miles per hour or faster Parts of our body are, what, like 12 or 18 inches off of the asphalt. And other cars sometimes pass very close, just a few feet away from us, and they're going 70 or more. And if we hit any stationary object, we're going to be immediately toast. But the thing is, we almost never think about this when we're driving or when we're riding in the car, do we? When we're doing it, it's just so commonplace, it doesn't feel like risky behavior. We've ridden in cars for so many years and decades. We've driven cars on high speeds on freeways for so long that it just feels safe. And it pretty much is a safe activity. But all the time we're doing this, we're implicitly trusting the car, the tires, the other drivers. That's kind of a scary thought. The road engineers and builders that they designed and made the roads smooth enough that we aren't going to suddenly see a brick wall right in front of us in our lane. Every moment that we're driving. And for most of us, all these things have scarcely ever failed us. Time and testing have built up trust. And this is exactly what the Lord is calling us to do. Just survey the years of His faithfulness and His power to save. Again, in history for other people and in our own lives. In our walk with Christ. Where do we go? Who do we trust when danger looms on the horizon? The God who is, the I am, the self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, unchanging fountain of all existence and life and blessing and joy. He's the Savior of His people. He's saying, trust me. Keep trusting me. Now, if you haven't yet heard, what it means to be His people is that we've come to Jesus Christ in faith. Now, after all the stress in our text about Yahweh alone being God, the I am, the only Savior, what does Jesus have to do with this? Well, it's interesting that Jesus and the New Testament authors, they were heavily reliant on the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which used the Greek word for Lord 
as a translation of Yahweh, the name I am. By the way, if you've ever wondered, that's why Yahweh uh, is translated with the all uppercase Lord in our English Bibles. They're following that same translation tradition from the Greek that Jesus and the apostles used. So with these Jews who are so steeped in the Old Testament, when they declare the first Christian confession, Jesus is Lord, what they were saying is, Jesus is Yahweh. This is how Paul summarizes the message that he proclaims in 2 Corinthians 4-5. He summarizes his proclamation. Now, there's certainly a lot more that he said, but this is in a nutshell. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Everything that God claims about himself in Isaiah 43 is true of Jesus in particular. He is the only Savior. He is the God-man in whom all the self-existent glory of the uncreated eternal I am is clothed in human flesh to save women and men and boys and girls who rest on Him in faith. And just like Israel, what we need saving from is the consequence of our sin against God. And for us, it's far worse than a temporal consequence, exile, being carted off in chains to a foreign land. It's eternal banishment from God's presence in hell. So if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus Christ the Lord to receive rescue from your sins, I invite and I urge you to come and rest in Jesus alone as your Savior today. He alone is the Savior. And whether this would be today the first time for you ever, or if we've already been Christians, but we realize that our devotion to God has been shaky, this is true for every one of us. The Lord is wooing us to trust Him alone, because He alone truly saves. I know that last week I brought up an insight by the the Dutch theologian Petrus von Maastricht. If you'd please indulge me to once again bring up a helpful point that he's made on this. In his chapter, he's writing a a theology, his chapter on the glory and majesty of God. He writes about how we reflect the majesty of God's glory. And essentially, the short answer is worship. But as he names the different ways that we worship God in view of his glory and majesty, he ends with this, supplications of every kind, which means prayer that asks him for things. Do do you think of asking God for things as worship? That can be kind of striking. If we're thinking of ways we worship God, do we list asking God for stuff? Why would it be worship to ask God for stuff? Well, this is what Maastricht writes. And in making supplications, he says, the omnipotence, which is the all-powerfulness of God, omniscience, meaning he knows everything, and unexhausted goodness of God are acknowledged and extolled. Meaning when we ask God for things, we're worshiping Him because we're acknowledging, God, you can do anything. God, you know everything. God, there's no running out of of your goodness. There's no getting to the bottom of your goodness. We acknowledge these things about you and we praise them. and and, And we do so by relying on you. By asking you to do good for us. The fullness and majesty of God in all of his attributes, everything that makes him the I am, everything that makes him different than the false gods, we magnify and reflect the greatness of God in these things by asking him for things, by relying on him. 
This is exactly what God is after in our text. He's saying, I'm the eternal one, the only Savior. Trust me. Ask me for what you need, not them. Lean on me. Rely on me. Know that as you go through the waters and the flames, I will be always here for you. Don't go running off to the other gods because they won't help. They never help. They can't help. He saves us to see and to trust. And finally, third, He saves us so that we'll testify that He is the I Am. God saves us so that we'll testify that He is the I Am. Now in verse 10, God tells Israel why He chose them to be His servant witnesses. It was for a very specific purpose. So that, or that, you may, three things. One, know. Two, believe me. That's trust. And third, and understand that I am He. That I am the I am. So they're supposed to see and know all these things and trust Him. We've already seen that. But what about this role of a witness? Why does he call them witnesses? A witness experiences something, and then on the basis of that sensory experience, they saw things, they heard things, they smelled things, whatever. On the basis of that experience, they tell others. So it's unstated, but it's clearly implied here that the other side of their role was to take all of the things they had seen and known and believed and understood about the Lord and they were supposed to tell the nations about this. They were supposed to be the witnesses in this courtroom tribunal who could testify, the Lord is different than the other gods. We can tell you about how He's predicted and saved. Israel's existence, Israel's keeping of the law, their representation of Yahweh was supposed to shame the nations For their worship of false gods. And they were supposed to attract the other peoples of the world to come and hear the Lord's Torah, the good teaching of His law. This is kind of a crass example, but consider advertising. How brands will pick someone who they want to represent them, someone to endorse their brand. It's someone who's good at sports, or someone who's smooth and cool and attractive. They want the image of that person to be tied to their brand in our minds. They want us to subconsciously think about their brand, their product, their service. And then this person who's projecting a certain quality of life that we want for ourselves. That this representative conveys the fruits of what this brand might bring about for us. If I use these shoes, maybe I can jump and run like this athlete, etc. Now God is not a manipulative and cheap advertiser, but... He does choose his witnesses and appoint them for the function of helping the world associate a certain way of living with the reality of who he is. That was Israel's calling. But the sad truth, as we've seen, is that the influence flowed in the opposite direction. The witnesses failed because they were blind and deaf. They didn't get who God is. And so rather than proving the Lord's point against the gods, they worshiped the other gods How utterly shameful is this? But now, as he's predicting, he'll once again work in history. And so once again, he's calling them his witnesses to once again invite them to fulfill their role. Will you bear witness of what I'm saying and what I'm about to do? Now this refrain, you are my witnesses, it occurs in verse 10. It's repeated in verse 12. It'll show up again in chapter 44, verse 8. You are my witnesses. 
And you may have caught, interestingly, the passage we read earlier in the service in Acts 1. Jesus says almost the exact same thing to his disciples before ascending into heaven. You will be my witnesses. Because they're the ones who have experienced and observed Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. They're the ones he launches out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth to proclaim him, to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done, everyone who turns back from their sin to trust him will receive complete forgiveness and salvation. And it's interesting that because Judas, one of the twelve, fell away and betrayed Jesus and killed himself ultimately, the disciples after this in Acts 1, they go, well, who's going to be the twelfth witness? And the one they pick is someone who had been with them all along and seen all that Jesus had done and said. It's witnesses who are qualified to testify of Jesus. This is why 1 John 1, verses 2 and 3 says, the life that was made manifest, that is Jesus, the, the invisible eternal life, the second person of the Trinity who was made manifest, clothed in flesh, that's Jesus. And he says, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And he goes on to say, and fellowship with God. Fellowship with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So those who observe Jesus, those who see and hear him, know him and then take that knowledge and function as testifiers, witnesses, so that others can come to know him and join in fellowship with him. Everyone who experiences God's salvation is called to this role, to testify about it to others in the world. Now we didn't see Jesus walking in Galilee. We didn't touch him with our hands. We didn't hear him teaching with our ears. But we have experienced his life and his death as we see them on the pages of the Gospels. We have personally tasted and seen of his saving power and love in his work in us through the Gospel. We, we sang about in our last song uh, that, that our hearts had no desire for heaven's joys. We didn't see, we didn't hear, but God in his power and his grace did something in us. If you're a Christian, these words have not remained dead letters on the page for you. The truth of Christ has leapt off of the page and he's made himself known to you in a very real way. And so this is our message to the world, what he has done for us and how that proves who he is. It's not just our message. It's not just something we tell. It's our function. It's our calling as his people. He has chosen to save us so that we can know how great he is and so that in knowing how great he is, we can tell others how great he is. And just like Israel, our testimony should appear in the quality of our lives under Christ's lordship. That's why he says in John 13 that the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. The quality of your fellowship as the body of Christ. But it's also by means of proclamation. Which is why Jesus sent out his disciples from Jerusalem saying, You are my witnesses, not just to love each other, but to speak a message to the world. And we all know that it's intimidating to bear witness of Christ in our world today. We might struggle with knowing what to say. We might struggle with finding the opportunity when it won't be horribly out of place, ill-timed. We might struggle with the fear of being rejected or despised. 
But in, in view of our text, here's at least one fruitful avenue for testifying of Christ in the world. And that is, look out for the ways that our friends and neighbors are serving false gods. They're all serving false gods. Many people claim to be secular. They don't claim to be religious. But some non-Christians even have, have seen this, have had the insight to realize we're all worshiping. The writer who's deceased now, David Foster Wallace, he has a famous speech called This is Water. And, and he makes this point. He says, we're all worshiping. Everyone's worshiping. So who are those non-believers in your life? Who or what are they worshiping? What are they serving? What are they trusting? What are they deriving their life from? We can look out for that and we can challenge them to consider whether Christ Jesus is not a better Savior and Lord than the masters they serve. And we can testify of our experience of how good God has been for us, how powerful and gracious He's proven Himself to be in our lives through Christ. Brothers and sisters, God saves us so that we'll see and trust and testify that He alone is the I Am. And as I said at the start, this is relational before it's functional. The Lord first wants us to know Him And he specifically wants us to know that he is the transcendent I am. He is the only Savior. And because we know he's the only Savior, he wants us to trust him as the only Savior. And he wants to show this to us by pouring out his goodness on us when all we deserve is judgment and abandonment for our sin. And it's only then, in in knowing the Lord and learning to trust him and continuing to feed on his goodness and salvation, that we can fulfill our function as witnesses in the world. We can show them what it looks like to walk through a dark and fearful world knowing that we're in the hands of our good shepherd and no one can turn back what he does. And we show them who he is and we can tell them, Jesus Christ is Lord. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as the I am. There's no one like you. There's no one who exists like you and there's no one who saves like you. Father, we confess that our hearts can be so quick to forget the bounty and the power and the grace and love of your salvation for us in Jesus. We pray that you would enliven our hearts to once again see and hear these things with vividness and awe. That you'd awaken and warm our hearts your grace and that you would stir us up to go and tell and show the world how utterly unlike the gods you are father we pray for wisdom in our time just knowing that there are so many challenging interactions there are so many challenging issues in our culture but we know that all of our neighbors who don't know you are blind in the worship of false gods that cannot save them we plead with you that we would be your agents who would call them into the light to know you through Jesus. We pray all this through through him, our Savior. Amen.